Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you beauties. Now I've got an Earl Grey in hand, and I'm ready to share some classic tales of old. Today's tales are The Lost Inheritance, a story with a wicked twist, and the moral that when someone is dying on their deathbed, you might want to listen to them at least once. And your second tale, A Deal in Ostriches, or should I say diamonds? A deal my mates most foul. So join me, you lovelies, for two tales today on this brilliant Friday. Turn off your lights, turn up your sound, and get cozy with me for two unique tales. My uncle, said the man with the glass eye, was what you might call a hemi-semi-demi-millionaire. He was worth about 120000 Quite. And he left me with all his money. I glanced at the shiny sleeve of his coat, and my eye travelled up to the frayed collar. Every penny, said the man with the glass eye, and I caught the active pupil looking at me with a touch of offence. I've never had any windfalls like that. Even a legacy isn't always a blessing. <sighs> He remarked with a sigh, and with an air of philosophical resignation, he put the red nose and the wiry moustache into his tankard for a space. Perhaps not, I said. He was an author, you see, and he wrote a lot of books. Indeed. That was the trouble of it all. He stared at me with the available eye to see if I grasped his statement, then averted his face a little, and produced a toothpick. You see, he said, smacking his lips after a pause, it was like this. He was my uncle, my maternal uncle, and he had, what shall I call it, a weakness for writing edifying literature. Weakness is hardly the word. Downright mania is nearer the mark. He'd been librarian in a polytechnic, and as soon as the money came to him, he began to indulge his ambition. It's a simply extraordinary and incomprehensible thing to me. Here was a man of 37, suddenly dropped into a perfect pile of gold. And he didn't go, not a day's bust on it. One would think a chap would go and get himself dressed a bit decent. Say a couple of dozen pairs of trousers at a West End tailor. But he never did. You'd hardly believe it, but when he died, he hadn't even a gold watch. It seems wrong. For people like that to have money. And all he did was just to take a house and order in pretty nearly five tons of books and ink and paper. And set to writing edifying literature as hard as ever he could write. I can't understand it. But he did. The money came in, curiously enough, through a maternal uncle of his. Unexpected like. When he was seven and thirty. My mother, it happened, was his only relation in the wide, wide world, except some second cousin of his, and I was her only son. You follow all that? The second cousins had only one son, too, but they brought him to see the old man too soon. He was rather a spoiled youngster, was this son of theirs, 
and directly he set his eyes on my uncle. He began bawling out as hard as he could. Take him away, yeah? He says, take him away. And so did for himself entirely. It was pretty straight sailing, you'd think, for me, eh? And my mother, being a sensible, careful woman, settled the business in her own mind long before he did. He was a curious little chap, was my uncle, as I remember him. I don't wonder at the kid being scared. Hair, just like these Japanese dolls they sell, black and straight and stiff all around the brim, and none in the middle, and below a whitish kind of face, and rather large dark grey eyes moving about behind his spectacles. He used to attach a great deal of importance to dress, and always wore a flapping overcoat and a big rimmed felt hat of a most extraordinary size. He looked a rummy little bugger. I can tell you. Indoors it was, as a rule, a dirty red flannel dressing gown and a black skull cap he had. That black skull cap made him look like the portraits of all kinds of celebrated people. He was always moving about from house to house, was my uncle, with his chair which had belonged to Savage Landor and his two writing tables, one of the Carlyles and the other of Shelley's, so the dealer told him, and the completest portable reference library in England, he said he had, and he lugged the whole caravan, now to a house at Down, near Darwin's old place, then to Rygate, near Meredith, then off to Halsmere, then back to Chelsea for a bit, and then up to Hampstead. He knew there was something wrong with his stuff, but he never knew there was anything wrong with his brains. It was always the air, or the water, or the altitude, or some tommy rot like that. So much depends on environment, he used to say, and stare at you hard, as if he half suspected you were hiding a grin at him somewhere under your face. So much depends on environment to a sensitive mind like mine. What was his name? You wouldn't know if I told you. He wrote nothing that anyone has ever read. Nothing. But no one could read it. He wanted to be a great teacher, he said. And he didn't know what he wanted to teach any more than a child. So he just blethered at large about truth and righteousness and the spirit of history and all that. Book after book he wrote and published at his own expense. He wasn't quite right in his head. You know, really. And to hear him go on at the critics, not because they slated him, mind you, he liked that, but because they didn't take any notice of him at all. What do the nations want? He would ask, holding out his brown old claw. Why, teaching guidance. They're all scattered upon the hills like sheep without a shepherd. There is a war and rumors of war. The unlaid spirit of discord abroad in the land, nilsham, vivisection, vaccination, drunkenness, penury, want, socialistic error, selfish capital. Do you see the clouds, Ted? My name, you know. Do you see the clouds lowering over the land? And behind it all, the Mongol awaits. He was always very great on Mongols, and the spectre of socialism, and such like things. Then out would come a finger at me, and with his eyes all afire, and his skull cap askew, 
he would whisper, And here I am. What do I want nations to teach? Nations! I say it with all modesty, Ted. I could. I would guide them. Nay, but I will guide them to safe haven, to the land of righteousness flowing with milk and honey. That's how he used to go on, ramble, rave about the nations and righteousness and that kind of thing. Kind of mincemeat of Bible and blethers. From 14 up to 3 and 20, when I might have been improving my mind, my mother used to watch me and brush my hair, at least in their earlier years of it, with a nice parting down the middle and take me once or twice a week to hear this old lunatic chapper about things he had read of in the morning papers, trying to do it as much like Carlyle as he could. And I used to sit according to instructions, and look intelligent and nice, and pretend to be taking it all in. Afterwards, I used to go off my own free will, out of a regard for the legacy. I was the only person that used to go see him. He wrote, I believe, to every man who made the slightest stir in the world, sending him a copy or so of his books, and inviting him to come and talk about the nations to him. But half of them didn't answer, and none ever came. And when the girl let you in, she was an artful bit of goods, that girl. There were heaps of letters on the hall seat waiting to go off addressed to Prince Bismarck, the President of the United States, and such like people. And one went up the staircase and along the cobwebby passage. The housekeepers drank like fury, and his passages were always cobwebby, and found him at last, with books turned down all over the room, and heaps of torn paper on the floor, and telegrams and newspapers littered about, and empty coffee cups and half-eaten bits of toast on the desk and mantel. You'd see his back humped up, and his hair would be sticking out straight between the collar of that dressing gown thing and the edge of the skull cap. A moment, he would say. A moment, over his shoulder. The mot juste, you know, Ted. Le mot juste. Righteous thought righteously expressed. Aha! Concatenation. And now, Ted, he'd say, spinning round in his study chair. How's young England? That was his silly name for me. Well, that was my uncle. And that was how he talked, to me at any rate. With others about, he seemed a bit shy. And he not only talked to me, but he gave me his books. Books of 600 pages or so, with cockeyed headings. The Shrieking Sisterhood. The Behemoth of Bigotry. Crucibles and Calanders, and so on. All very strong, and none of them original. The very last time, but one that I saw him, he gave me a book. He was feeling ill even then, and his hand shook, and he was despondent. I noticed it because I was naturally on the lookout for these little symptoms. My last book, Ted, he said. My last book, my boy. My last word to the deaf and hardened nations. And I'm hanged if a tear didn't go rolling down his yellow old cheek. He was regular crying because it was so nearly over, and he hadn't only written about 53 books of rubbish. I've sometimes thought, Ted, 
he said and stopped. Perhaps I've been a bit hasty and angry with this stiff-necked generation. A little more sweetness, perhaps, and a little less blinding light. I have sometimes thought I might have swayed them, but I've done my best dead. And then, with a burst, for the first and last time in his life, he owned himself a failure. It showed he was really ill. He seemed to think for a minute, and then he spoke quietly and low, as sane and sober as I am now. I've been a fool, Ted. He said. I've been a fool. I've been flapping nonsense all my life. Only he who readeth the heart knows whether this is anything more than vanity. Ted, I don't. But he knows. He knows. And if I have done foolishly and vainly in my heart, in my heart. Just like that he spoke, repeating himself. And he stopped quite short and handed the book to me, trembling. Then the old shine came back into his eyes. I remember it all fairly well because I repeated it and acted it to my old mother when I got home to cheer her up a bit. Take this book and read it, he said. It's my last word, my very last word. I've left all my property to you, Ted, and may you use it better than I have done. And then he fell a coughing. I remember that quite well even now, and how I went home cock-a-hoop, and how he was in bed the next time I called. The housekeeper was downstairs drunk, and I... Fooled about, as a young man will, with the girl in the passage before I went to him. He was sinking fast, but even then his vanity clung to him. Have you read it? Sat up all night reading it. I said in his ears to cheer him up. It's the last, said I, and then with the memory of some poetry or other in my head. But it's the bravest and best. He smiled a little and tried to squeeze my hand, as a woman might do, and left off squeezing in the middle, and lay still. The bravest and the best, said I again, seeing it pleased him, but he didn't answer. I heard the girl giggle outside the door, for occasionally we had just a bit of innocent laughter, you know, at his ways. I looked at his face, and his eyes were closed, and it was just as if somebody had punched in his nose on either side. But he was still smiling. It's queer to think of. He lay dead. Lay dead there, an utter failure, with the smile of success on his face. That was the end of my uncle. You can imagine me and my mother saw that he had a decent funeral. Then, of course, came the hunt for the will. We began decent and respectful at first, and before the day was out, we were ripping chairs and smashing bureau panels and sounding walls. Every hour we expected those others to come in. We asked the housekeeper and found she'd actually witnessed a will. On an ordinary half-sheet of notepaper, it was written, and very short, she said. Not a month ago, the other witness was the gardener, and he bore her out word for word. But I'm hanged if there was still that or any other will to be found. 
The way my mother talked must have made him turn in his grave. At last, a lawyer at Raygate sprang one on us that had been made years ago during some temporary quarrel with my mother. I'm blessed if that wasn't the only will to be discovered anywhere, and it left every penny he possessed to that take-him-away youngster of his second cousins, a chap who had never had to stand his talking not for one afternoon of his life. The man with the glass eye stopped. I thought you said... I began. Half a minute, said the man with the glass eye. I had to wait for the end of the story till this very morning, and I was a blessed sight more interested than you are. You just wait a bit, too. They executed the will, and the other chap inherited, and directly he was one and twenty. He began to blew it. How did he blew it, to be sure? He bet. He drank. He got in the papers for this and that. I tell you, it makes me wriggle to think of the times he had. He blew every halfpenny of it before he was thirty, and the last I heard of him was Holloway. Three years ago. Well, I naturally fell on hard times because, as you see, the only trade I knew was legacy cadging. All my plans were waiting over to begin, so to speak, when the old chap died. I had my ups and downs since then. Just now it's a period of depression. I tell you frankly, I'm on the lookout for help. I was hunting round my room to find something to raise a bit on for my immediate necessities. And the sight of all those presentations, volumes... None. No one will buy them. Not to wrap butter in it, even. Well, they annoyed me. I'd promised him not to part with them, and I never kept the promise easier. I let out at them with my boot, and sent them shooting across the room. One lifted at the kick and spun through the air, and out of it flapped. You guess. It was the will. He'd given it me himself in that very last volume of all. He folded his arms on the table and looked sadly with the active eye at his empty tankard. He shook his head slowly and said softly, I never opened the book. Much more cut of page. Then he looked up with a bitter laugh for my sympathy. <laughs> Fancy hiding it there, eh? Of all places. He began to fish absently for a dead fly with his finger. It just shows you the vanity of authors, he said, looking up at me. It was no trick of his. He had meant perfectly fair. He had really thought I was really going home to read that blessed book of his through. But it shows you, don't it? His eye went down to the tankard again. It shows you, too, how we poor human beings fail to understand one another. But there was no misunderstanding the eloquent thirst of his eye. He accepted with ill-feigned surprise. He said in the usual subtle formula that he didn't mind if he did. Talking of the price of birds... I've seen an ostrich that costs 300 pounds, said the taxidermist, recalling his youth of travel. 300 pounds! He looked at me over his spectacles, 
I've seen another that was refused at four. No, it wasn't any fancy points. They were just plain ostriches. A little off color, too, owing to dietary. And there wasn't any particular restriction on the demand either. You'd have thought five ostriches would have ruled cheap on an East Indiaman. But the point was, one of them had swallowed a diamond. The chap that got it off was Sir Mohini Padisha. A tremendous swell. A Piccadilly swell, you might say, up to the neck of him. And then an ugly black head and a whopping turban with this diamond in it. The blessed bird pecked suddenly and had it. And when the chap made a fuss, it realized it had done wrong, I suppose, and went and nicked itself with the others to preserve it in cock. It all happened in a minute. I was among the first to arrive, and there was this heathen going over his guards, and two sailors, and the man who had charge of the birds laughing fit to split. It was a rummy way of losing a jewel, come to think of it. The man in charge hadn't been about just at the moment, so that he didn't know which bird it was. Clean lost, you see. I didn't feel half sorry, to tell you the truth. The beggar had been swaggering over his blessed diamond ever since he came aboard. A thing like that goes from stem to stem of a ship in no time. Everyone was talking about it. Padisha went below to find his feelings. At dinner... He pigged at a table by himself, him and two other Hindus. The captain kind of jeered at him about it, and he got very excited. He turned around and talked into my ear. He would not buy the birds. He would have his diamond. He demanded his rights as a British subject. His diamonds must be found. He was firm upon that. He would appeal to the House of Lords. The man in charge of the bird was one of those wooden-headed chaps. You can't get a new idea anyhow. He refused any proposal to interfere with the bird by way of medicine. His instructions were to feed them so and so and treat them so and so. And it was as much as his place was worth not to feed them so and so and treat them so and so. Padisha had wanted a stomach pump. Though you can't do that to a bird, you know. This Padisha was full of bad law, like most of the blessed Bengals, and talked over having a lien on the birds, and so forth. But an old boy, who said his son was a London barrister, argued that what a bird had swallowed became ipso facto part of the bird, and that Padisha's only remedy lay in an action for damages, and even that it might be possible to show contributory negligence. He hadn't any right of way about an ostrich that didn't belong to him. That upset Padisha extremely. The more so as most of us expressed an opinion that that was the reasonable view. There wasn't any lawyer abroad to settle the matter, so we all talked pretty free. At last, after Adam, it appears that he came round to the general opinion, and went privately to the man in charge and made an offer for all five ostriches. The next morning there was a fine shindy at breakfast. The man hadn't any authority to deal with the birds, and nothing on earth would induce him to sell. But it seems, he told Padisha, 
that a Eurasian named Potter had already made him an offer, and on that, Padisha denounced Potter before us all. But I think the most of us thought it rather smart of Potter. And I know that when Potter said that he'd wired at Adden to London to buy the birds, and would have an answer at Suez, I cursed pretty richly at a lost opportunity. At Suez, Padisha gave way to tears, actual wet tears, when Potter became the owner of the birds and offered him 250 right off the bat for the five. Being more than 200% on what Potter had given, Potter said he'd be hanged if he parted with a feather of them, that he meant to kill them off one by one and find the diamond. But afterwards, thinking it over, he relented a little. He was a gambling hound, was this Potter. A little queer at cards, and this kind of prize packet business might have suited him down to the ground. Anyhow, he offered for a lark to sell the birds separately to separate people by auction at a starting price of £80 for a bird. But one of them, he said, he meant to keep for luck. You must understand, this diamond was a valuable one. A little Jew chap, a diamond merchant, who was with us, had put it at three or four thousand when Padisha had shown it to him. And this idea of an ostrich gamble caught on. Now it happened that I'd been having a few talks on general subjects with the man who looked after these ostriches. And quite incidentally, he said one of the birds was ailing and he fancied it had indigestion. It had one feather in its tail, almost all white, by which I knew it. And so when, next day, the auction started with it, I capped Padisha's 85 by 90. I fancy I was a bit too sure and eager with my bid, and some of the others spotted the fact that I was in the know. And Padisha went for that particular bird like an irresponsible lunatic, at last, the Jew diamond merchant got it for £175, and Padisha said 180 just after the hammer came down. So Potter declared. At any rate, the Jew merchant secured it, and there and then he got a gun and shot it. Potter made a Hades of a fuss, because he said it would injure the sale of the other three. And Padisha, of course, behaved like an idiot. But all of us were very much excited. I can tell you I was precious glad when that dissection was over and no diamond had turned up. Precious glad. I'd gone to 140 on that particular bird myself. The little Jew was like most Jews. He didn't make any great fuss over bad luck. But Potter declined to go on with the auction until it was understood that the goods could not be delivered until the sale was over. The little Jew wanted to argue that the case was exceptional, and as the discussion ran pretty even, the thing was postponed until the next morning. We had a lively dinner table that evening, I can tell you, but in the end Potter got his way. Since it would stand to reason, he would be safer if he stuck to all the birds, and that we owed him some consideration for his sportsmanlike behavior. And the old gentleman whose son was a lawyer said he'd been thinking the thing over, and that it was very doubtful if, 
when a bird had been opened and the diamond recovered, it ought not to be handed back to the proper owner. I remember I suggested it came under the laws of treasure trove, which was really the truth of the matter. There was a hot argument, and we settled it was certainly foolish to kill the bird on board the ship. Then the old gentleman, going at large through his legal talk, tried to make out the sale was a lottery and illegal, and appealed to the captain. But Potter said he sold the birds as ostriches. He didn't want to sell any diamonds, he said, and didn't offer that as an inducement. The three birds he put up, to the best of his knowledge and belief, did not contain a diamond. It was in the one he kept, so he hoped. Prices ruled high next day all the same. The fact that now there was four chances instead of five, of course, caused a rise. The blessed birds averaged 227, and, oddly enough, this Padisha didn't secure one of them. Not one! He made too much shindy, and when he ought to have been bidding, he was talking about liens. And besides, Potter was a bit down on him. One fell to a quiet little officer chap, another to a little Jew and the third was syndicated by the engineers. And then, Potter, to hedge on his last chance, I found he'd already sold the bird he'd reserved to a political chap that was on board, a chap who had been studying Indian morals and social questions in his vacation. That last was the 300-pound bird. Well, they landed three of the blessed creatures at Brindisi, Though the old gentleman said it was a breach of the customs regulations, and Potter and Padisha landed too. The Hindu seemed half mad as he saw his blessed diamond going this way and that, so to speak. He kept on saying he'd get an injunction. He had injunction on the brain, and giving his name and address to the chaps who'd brought the birds, so that they know where to send the diamond. None of them wanted his name and address, and none of them would give their own. It was a fine row, I can tell you, on the platform. They all went off by different trains. I came on to Southampton, and there I saw the last of the birds. As I came ashore, it was the one the engineers bought, and it was standing up near the bridge in a kind of crate and looking as leggy and silly and setting for all a valuable diamond as ever you saw, if it was a setting for a valuable diamond. How did it end? Oh, like that? Well, perhaps. Yes, there was one more thing that may throw light on it. A week or so after landing, I was down Regent Street doing a bit of shopping, and who should I see arm in arm and having a purple time of it all, but Padisha and Potter, if you come to think of it. Yes, I've thought that. Only, you see, there's no doubt the diamond was real, and Padisha was an eminent Hindu. I've seen his name in the papers often, but whether the bird swallowed the diamond certainly is another matter, <laughs> as you say. Mates, I hope you loved both your tales, and I would be so gutted if I was the guy who lost the inheritance from the first tale. <laughs> to have some cousin spend all of his money, betting it, gambling it away, 
I think my heart would break at that level of regret for not simply following a final wish, a harsh lesson. And the second tale about ostriches <laughs> and the ending? So cheeky, those two. Really played them all. Yep, both these tales were bangers, mates. Absolute bangers, and I hope you loved them as well. Folks, it's time to thank my supporters. If you think, hey, I want to support this Aussie to improve and do more unique content for the show, you can support me directly at www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT. As simple as that. And every dollar you do goes right back into improving the show and supporting authors. So, first up is my awesome, shining bright like a diamond, Ode Night Tea Titan, Marvelous Maya. Maya, you basically grab this podcast by the belt and spin it into the stratosphere with your level of support. And thanks to you, I've recently purchased a brand new tripod for my microphone that I'm using right now. It's made of steel and it folds out. Why does that matter? Because I had a plastic one before and it was sort of unstable. Uh, this one really kicks the crap out of it though. Less vibration and its weighted material means I can produce even clearer audio because there's no bumps and kicks and knocks. So thank you so, so much. This is the first episode that I'm using it with. Hope you love it, mate. And my white tea warlord, King Lezer the Mega. Thank you, mate, for your fantastic support. I recently ordered a new pop shield to cut out pops and clicks because currently the one I have cracked from the connection point to the microphone base. I just think that was due to old age and over time wear and tear of a tightly screwed in connection point. But thanks to you, I can now grab a new one and there's no more pops and clicks, or at least a lot less. Cheers, Leza. And the lifeblood of this show, my Earl Grey enforces you awesome peeps. I've got Chad Warren, Joss Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, and Divided by Zero. Thank you all for being awesome. A mini update to all you lovelies. There won't be an episode Monday as I'll be on a public holiday going out to see the family and spending time with them. But if I get a chance anyway to upload, I absolutely will. Thank you all for being brilliant. Have a wonderful Friday day or night, and as always, till next we meet.